I want to talk to you today about a movie called Crash. Not for very long, not that I would recommend this movie, it's kind of rough. But it's a great picture of the way that our biases affect the way we see each other in the world. The movie is uh, a story of people coming together from across cultural lines, racial lines, and kind of crashing into each other and, and realizing that they see in ways that are very cloudy. Matt Damon plays a, uh, a, an officer of the law, and he stops this couple and um, treats them very unkindly, abuses his power, and reinforces in this couple's mind uh, things that uh, you know, clouded their lens about police and the police. And so, um, and so she is, is particularly abused by this encounter with this police officer. Later on in the movie, when she crashes her car and it's flipped upside down and she's trapped and can't get out, she is appalled to see that the one police officer who arrives on the scene first is this very abuser. And she objects to him helping her until she realizes that there's gas leaking and that there's a flame and that uh, she's about to die. Immediately, he's pulled out of the car, and not because he wants to be, but because his partner realizes the car is going to explode. He's pulled out of the car, and she's completely undone by this, and realizing she's, she's going to die. He climbs back into the car and takes his knife and cuts her seatbelt, pulls her out of the car, and they, as they escort her away from the car at a safe distance, it immediately explodes. I told, told you that story because I want to tell you about the look on her face after all this happens. It says, the enti- it, it says the whole story. As she's walking away with the paramedics, she looks back, and the look on her face is one of quizzical incredulity. She is completely stunned. It was as if she were saying, how could you have risked your life for me? But not only that. She was saying, how could you have risked your life for me? You see, we have lenses, we have biases, and a lot of times what we do is we read new evidence into our old narrative. And so if we have a narrative about a particular kind of person, whether it's their job that they do or, or, or their race or their, their, uh, their position or, or somebody who's close to you. And, and you, you, you and I create these stories about, about these people in our minds. And there's this thing called a confirmation bias where when you see them behaving in a, in a certain way, you read that behavior according to your narrative, the narrative that you already have. And so you begin to see, even if somebody is, is doing something that, that's neutral or even positive, if you have a negative narrative about that person, it powerfully influences the way you see that person and the way you read their behavior. Narrative. Narrative. It's part of the lens through which we see the world and each other. We not only have a narrative about people, but we have a narrative about places and things as well. I I ran into a quote again, a great quote by Stephen Covey. He says this, he says, 
Uh, We don't see things so much as they are, but as we are. Doesn't that sum up? This This really sums up the series. We don't see so much things as they are, but as we are. It's true for facts as well, even science. So we look at science, we look at at, the, at, at uh, perhaps the origin of the species, we look at, at, um, at evolution, we look at, uh, at, at the way that science brings us new innovations, and we have a narrative through which we look at these developments. And a lot of times people think that, that science, therefore, is in conflict with faith. But what I want to show you this morning is that it's not science and faith that are in conflict. It's the worldviews that oppose one another. There's a worldview that is often associated with science that doesn't need to be. It's called materialism or naturalism. And it's the idea that without having any evidence for it, we have already decided that Everything arose on its own. There's no evidence for that. There's no evidence that, that the universe created itself. But, but even, if, even if we understood everything about the universe and everything about everything in the universe, there would still be the mysterious question, why? Where did everything come from? And so often, when we look at Genesis, people look at Genesis through a how lens when they need to look at Genesis through a why lens. Genesis talks much more about why than it does about how. Francis Collins, who is one of the greatest scientific minds of our times and a believer, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. He he helped map uh, human DNA from beginning to end. Francis Collins says this. We... Uh, Will we turn our backs on science because it is perceived as a threat to God? Abandoning the alleviation of suffering and the betterment of humankind? And then he says this, alternatively, will we turn our backs on faith, concluding that religious symbols can now be replaced by engravings of the double helix on our altars? Both these choices are profoundly dangerous, he says. Both deny truth. Both will diminish the nobility of humankind. And both are unnecessary. God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. And it cannot be at war with itself. Only we, imperfect humans, can start such battles. And only we can end them. Why do some people look at a snowflake in its crystallized unity and perfection and symmetry and see only a collection of molecules and others see the magnificent beauty that sings in it. It's the narrative. It's the narrative. And I would, I would venture that, that even people who would claim that a snowflake, in all its beauty, 
is only a collection of molecules have a guttural, visceral reaction to beauty themselves. They know the narrative. We all know the narrative. We all know that creation sings. We all know this. And yet sometimes we buy into a narrative that gives us autonomy. Autonomy. And so more often than not, the narrative of materialism that reduces everything to, that what, to what can be measured or naturalism that says there is no God, that narrative, more often than not, is an emotionally driven sto- backstory. Driven by what? The desire to be our own God. It's the same problem we've had from the very beginning in Genesis. And so this morning, let's take a look at why only a narrative that is based on God, only a narrative that includes God, only a narrative that is centered on God is big enough for a human experience. Only a, a God-centered narrative is deep enough and wide enough to speak fully to our human experience. From the Word of God, Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4. Hear God's Word this morning. These, uh, these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. Oh, by the way, let me pause here and say, you know, some people say there, there are two stories of, of Genesis and uh, try to discredit the Bible because of that. There are many places in scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, where there are two different places where the same story is told. One of them is told in song, in poetry, and one of them is told more from the left side of the brain, a little bit more uh, in, in terms of, of the history. This is the, the historic version of it. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, because, why? For the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first uh, is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and, and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is Tigris which flows uh, east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to keep it and work it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil 
you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God, do bless us indeed today, not only in our minds to understand this word, but in our hearts to believe it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so quickly today, what I want to do is I want to demonstrate to you how only a God-centered narrative is big enough, is wide enough and deep enough for our human experience. And what I hope you'll, you'll walk away with is a sense of, yeah, absolutely, that is so true. It resonates. The truth of this, I hope, will resonate with you in terms of your own experience. So look at, let's look at the breadth of human experience and how a God-centered narrative first is, is, is only, only a God-centered narrative is big enough for the, the breadth of human experience. Uh, you know, every, every now and then, uh, when, um, when it's Christmas or a birthday, uh, we would buy uh, for our boys... Uh, those little helicopters, you know, just the little remote control helicopters, mainly because I liked to play with them. And, um, and so, uh, so we, would, we, would, we would buy these helicopters, and they, they, they really enjoyed them, and they got really good at flying them uh, and making a nuisance of themselves with their mom, flying around her head and that sort of thing between what she was reading, and they really got good. And, uh, but imagine taking one of those helicopters and putting it on the workbench and taking it apart and taking apart the remote control and saying, there's nothing to this. Look at this. It's just parts. Would that make sense? I mean, does that make sense to you? Here is something that has a remote control and a corresponding uh, a unit, a toy, a helicopter, there's, there's, there's a relationship between them. You can't really see it, but you know it's there. It's a radio signal, right, a frequency. A, that, and, and, and here are these two separate things, and, and they relate to each other. You can take them apart, and you can see them, and, but does it make sense then in taking them apart to declare that they are meaningless, that there's no purpose to them? Does it make sense to boil them down, reduce them down to the parts, and say, this is just a bunch of parts, they just happen to fit together. Does this make sense? Well, it doesn't make sense when I put it that way, does it? You know, it's amazing that, that we have five senses, and it's amazing that all of that our bodies uh, correspond to these independent, right, remote control, <laughs> independent. There, there's a relationship between our eyes and light, between our ears and sound, between our, our skin and, and touch. Our taste buds and, and, and our sense of smell. What an amazing coincidence. Isn't that amazing that, that independently, on its own, uh, human beings um, rose up out of primordial ooze and put themselves together, and it just so happens that, that the way that, that we relate to our environment, it just matches up. Isn't that cool? Oh, that's great. I love it. I love how that just happened. And, um, and, and so this is, this is the sticking point not only for, um, for Darwin, right? Dar Darwin in, in Origin of the Species, he says, you know, the thing I can't explain is why there's this correspondence and how this is incredible, seeming 
seemingly incredible coincidence. And you know, Richard Dawkins, who is the biggest atheist antagonist scientist of our age, says this. He says this. He says, yeah, everything looks like it's designed. He actually says this. I love it. I love it. You go Google him, Richard Dawkins. Don't, 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 don't take too much of Richard Dawkins in. He's very obnoxious, and he's intending to be. He's, he's, he's deliberately being antagonistic to people who believe. But even he can't get around or get over the fact that there is this amazing beauty and appearance of design. You look at verse 5 of Genesis, and it says this. Look back at it again with me. When there was no bush in the field yet, uh, in the land, there was no small plant had sprung up yet. Why? I said, because for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no one to work the ground. What I want you to see here is something that a lot of times people skirt by, and it's the fact that in Genesis, the, the inspired text here is telling us something really vital about, about how God created First of all, the point is that God created some things ex nihilo, out of nothing, right? And so part of the point of, of this story out of, of Genesis is just to get that straight. And this is the thing we get wrong again and again and again on so many different levels, often very personal levels, where we forget that we were created, that there's a creation and we were created and, and we belong to our creator. How often have we forgotten that this week? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know, in your mind, in your heart, you can raise your hand. How often have we forgotten the creator? You know, part of the main point of, of, of this whole narrative is just to say there is a creator and you're not going to see things correctly. You're only going to see things the way you are in a broken way unless you begin to have your lens cleared by the, the fact that behind all things, behind this design is a creator. It doesn't say everything about how, but don't miss this. God uses and he wants us to know that God created the creation to develop and for us to cultivate it and for us to explore it and to understand it and to discover it and, and to sing over it and to be amazed with what he's done. But also that it, he built into the creation the ability to develop itself. Because it had not yet rained, there was no tree. There was no small plant, no shrub. And so it explains how the rivers and the mist you know, brought uh, what was needed to the land for things to grow. You see, what, what Genesis is saying is God made it. And God made it in such a dynamic way that it can develop itself. And it, it is, it, it is a, a creation of for which we are stewards. And so you see, in order to see reality, in order to see clearly, we have to understand that there is a creator, and without that knowledge, without that knowledge, we're going to be sitting here wondering, why? What, is all, what are all these parts for? What is this little toy helicopter for? Is it just a bunch of parts and this amazing coincidence of, of, of communication between the remote control and the helicopter itself? Without the right narrative, 
We have no why. We only have how. So only a God-centered narrative. Only a God who can create something out of nothing. This is, the, this is the question that philosophers, scientists, no one can get around. And that is, why is there something instead of nothing? If there were no powerful creator, then there wouldn't be anything. Period. It absolutely makes no sense. And nobody can make sense of that. Nobody has ever spoken in a way that, that makes sense of why there's something rather than nothing, except for Scripture that says this. God made it out of nothing. So that's the first thing. Only a God-centered narrative is big enough for the breadth of human experience. And we know it. We know it already. We know it every time we see a little toy helicopter. We know it every time we see the beauty in one small snowflake. Second is this. Only a God-centered narrative is deep enough for human experience. Deep enough. The depth of human experience includes this complexity, right? This complexity of good and bad, of high and low, of evil, and of the great capacity to create and to tear down. Solzhenitsyn, again, I've quoted him before. He says the, the, the... the, the, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, right? Only a God-sized narrative makes sense of ourselves and the war that we have within us. Any other story falls short and leaves us hanging. Let's, let's think about that for a minute. A story that leaves you hanging. You've, you've told one of those before, right? You've told that kind of story where kind of you've, you've missed the punchline, right? And, and you realize right in the middle of it, uh-oh, I'm telling this story, and I don't know how this thing's going to end. Like, so, so imagine that you're telling a story, and it's like, um, all right, th- this guy, and I've, I've told so many of these kinds of stories. And we have to tell stories to learn how to tell stories. So imagine I've told this kind of story so many times where I'm just I'm starting to tell the story, and it's like, hey, this guy stopped me on the street, and he wanted my watch. I, I mean, it just startled me. It was wild. Okay, <laughs> right, and then you're embarrassed, right? It's like, yeah, maybe you had to be there, right? So that's, that's kind of what we say when we try to make up for our embarrassment. We say, well, maybe you had to be there, right? Maybe you had to be there. But now let's add to the story. Okay, so I'm, I'm walking down the street, and this guy stops me. He wants my watch, and, um, and, and so I, he seems really upset, and so I said, well, uh, okay, and I gave him my watch, and he ran into the bank, and I followed him into the bank, and there was his wife in labor. And he was timing the contractions, right? <laughs> okay? All right, now that's a good story. That's funny. So, so here's, here's, here's a, the beginning of a story, and then there's this crisis moment, right? And then there's sort of this resolution. And then, well, we got to resolve the rest of the story. Okay, there's a happy ending. The ambulance comes, and, and they, uh, you know, somebody who's a professional delivers this baby. All right, so that's the end of the story. Everybody's happy now. But see, this... This is a story. This, this, the scriptures tell the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. All through every passage, you see this again and again and again and again. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The idea that we're created, the idea that we're broken, 
The idea that there is, there is a solution, there's a Savior coming, or there's a Savior who came. The idea that, 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 that the heavens and the earth will be created, that history is heading somewhere. In fact, there is this thing called the Aristotelian plot line where you know, any other kind of plot just does not fully satisfy us. It doesn't make sense. We know it, we're storytellers. Because God has spoken his word into us. He's spoken through stories. He's spoken his history in us. And so in some ways, every time we tell a story, we're sort of echoing the original story. We're echoing the idea that we're storytellers. We're echoing the idea that that God is telling a story of history. And you're in it. We're characters in it. There's a hero to it. There's a problem in it. And you can see this here You can see the beginnings of it and the rumblings of it. You know what happens. There's even foreshadowing in this one. When I read to you that he placed the tree there, you felt it, didn't you? You felt sort of the the looming thunder. You you felt the gathering storm here, didn't you? There's drama here that we are not our own, and yet we try to be again and again and again, and it doesn't work out for us time and time again. Our biggest mistakes are when we take matters in our own hands and try to be our own authority, our own God, and try to tell our own story and say we have our own idea of where things are supposed to go. And we try to be the hero of our own story instead of recognizing there is already a hero. Somebody told me years ago when I was working too hard and doing too much, he said, Tim, you know the world already has a savior? And it's not you. (laughs) You know, there's a hero of the story. You see verses 15 through 17. The Lord took man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. He's telling the story of creation, sharing life with us. Sometimes people will say, you know, the problem of evil is why I don't believe. The problem of evil, Tim, is is why I don't believe in God. And you know, a couple of times when I've said, I've said this, I've said, why do you call it evil? Try that. I mean, don't, because it's kind of mean. Because there's not a, it's a rhetorical question. Where did you get the idea that there's evil? If there is no God and we're not created by him and life isn't purposeful and meaningful and the helicopter is just a bunch of parts, why do you call it evil? It's just a turn of events. Why do you have this thing in you that tells you that is wrong? Because of this story. You know, nobody but a sociopath, somebody who is completely disconnected from reality, fails to recognize that there is some good and some evil. Now, we may disagree on where that line is between good and evil, good and bad, but only a sociopath, somebody who who is a harm to himself and a menace to society, only that kind of person fails to recognize that there is baked into us, baked into reality, this strong sense of morality. It speaks to us. Sometimes it whispers to us. Sometimes it, it, it shouts meaning and purpose into our lives, order in the chaos. Ravi Zacharias was speaking to a, a bunch of college students one time, and, and in an effort 
to distance herself from the tree of life and in an effort to, again, take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to, to become the judge and jury over her own life, she, she tried to denigrate what Ravi Zacharias was saying. She said, you Christians are always talking about you know, some coherent uh, worldview, which is what this series is about, is having a coherent worldview, right? You Christians are always talking about having a coherent worldview. I don't know what's wrong with you. Why do you people, why are you so caught up and, and fixated on this old idea that everything's coherent? And she ended her question, and he stepped to the microphone and he said, would you like my answer to be coherent? And that was the end of that discussion. Of course, because wired into us is a sense of meaning and purpose and order. And if we don't have a big enough narrative, it does not reach to the scope, the breadth and depth of our human experience. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word that is true in poetic form. It's true historically. It's true in ways that we cannot even wrap our minds around. It's true because, Lord, you spoke it. And even if we don't fully understand it, even if we want more from it than we always find in it, Lord, help us to be shaped by it. Help us to have our minds clarified and our lenses clear so that we will see things as they are and not just as we are. In Jesus' name, amen.